Heavenly Father, we have gathered together this morning to give you thanks and honor and praise. You are worthy of this adoration because you have created us and sustained us, and you have redeemed us by the work of your Son, Jesus. We confess, Father, that we often give honor and glory to things that are not worthy. We allow our hearts and minds to drift from your perfect love and faithfulness. We allow our doubts and our worries to crowd out your goodness and your grace. Forgive us, Lord. We are frail and needy. Give us mercy, Lord, when we forget or misrepresent your promises to us. Like the father of the boy you delivered from an unclean spirit, we cry out to you. We believe. Help us with our unbelief. Father, we bring our cares before you this morning. For those in our congregation dealing with grief and loss, we pray that you would be near to them. We pray for your comfort and your peace. We pray for earthly reminders of the hope we have to be members of your eternal congregation. For members struggling with difficult relationships right now, whether with family members, friends, coworkers, employers, we pray for humility and grace. May we walk faithfully and model Christ in how we lay down our lives. Give us wisdom and discernment to move forward to bring you honor. Father, we pray for the local church. You have given your church as an instrument to display your glory to the nations. We pray for the members of Outward Church here in Salem. May that congregation grow in discipleship and love and bring you honor in our community. We pray the same for the congregation at Trinity Church in Portland. May the congregation there be bound by your faithfulness and love and their commitment to you and each other. And may they encourage one another towards righteousness and justice. Father, we are grateful for the work you have done in our congregation. We are thankful that you have grown us together in your love. We are grateful that our relationships can be grounded on the unshakable rock of your gospel. We are thankful for your mercy and your grace that allows us to be gracious with each other. And we are thankful for the number being added through baptism this morning. As we hear from your word and participate in the ordinances of baptism in the Lord's Supper this morning, we pray that you would increase our faith and that you would guide us in your perfect will. Would you be with Hans as he preaches your word, and may we have ears to hear what the Spirit will say to us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Tyler. You can have a seat. You can open up your Bibles to Romans 12. Romans 12. Every Sunday we partake of the Word of God and give Him praise for the goodness of His salvation and forgiveness. Amen? But these days on which we observe the ordinance of baptism are slightly different. The gospel speaks to the fact that we were separated from God by our sin, but by His blood we are forgiven of our sin and reconciled to Him and His people. And so baptism Sundays then are special. For these are the days on which we get to witness an even more tangible and practical understanding of that grace. We rejoice especially on these Sundays because we are carrying out the ordinances Christ gave us that signify salvation and forgiveness and new life. The ordinances of the Lord's Supper and of baptism. If Jesus' words are true, that the world will know us as his disciples by our love one for another, then this is the core of that evangelistic witness, covenanting with one another to live a life 
that gives glory to God and witness to his unifying salvation. But in our consumer-driven and self-centered culture, we often swing the pendulum too far in a corrective, and we focus too heavily upon individual salvation, so much so that we errantly disregard the communal aspect of what happens on these Sundays. Individual salvation is obviously miraculous and beautiful. That is what Christ did on the cross. But in so doing, he also saved people into a covenant people. For a person is not just saved into an isolated relationship with God. A person is saved by the blood of Christ and united by faith with a people that crosses both time and space, a group known as the Universal Church. Specifically, they are baptized into the local expression of that universal church in which they will act out their faith in Christ. In conversion, through the sacrifice of Christ, a person has been justified and forgiven and reconciled to God by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has individually joined them to God in relationship. Baptism is an outward symbol of that work and that activity because of its picture of cleansing and new birth. And at the same time, concurrently, it is also a picture that to be joined to Christ is to become part of his body and be joined together to his people. We are baptized into a people. Because we are finite creatures with limited time and energy and relational capacity and limited in geographical breadth, we are given a specific small group of people with whom we will act out our faith with whom we will act out our expression of being part of the larger universal church of Christ. And that is the local church. And so you can see that this outward declaration of an inward conversion and salvation initiates relationships in a huge way. It initiates relationship with Christ, and it initiates relationship with his people. Baptism initiates and is the entry right into Relationships formed by the grace of God. If you take notes, you can write that down as the title of today's sermon. Relationships formed by the grace of God. And so this morning, I want to renew our minds and spirits with this truth so we can understand the depth and weight and awesome beauty that we get to be a part of when we accept new members into the assembly of Jesus Christ. To do this this morning, we're going to take a break from Revelation and turn instead to Romans 12, and we're going to be specifically looking at the verses of Romans 12, 3 through 5, but we will look at it within the context of the whole book and its surrounding verses in Romans 12, 1 through 9. So let's read the whole nine verses to give us context, and then we're going to zoom in and unpack verses 3 through 5. Beginning in Romans 12, 1, it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers... By the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace uh, given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. 
Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. And we could go on. It says then, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. In verse 3, as we zoom in, Paul gives us first a command to see yourself and relationships within the church clearly. A command to see yourself and relationships within the church clearly. Paul has spent the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans of his letter to the local church at Rome, laying out for them the perfect theological understanding of the gospel. He has covered topics like creation, the Old Testament, the basis of sin, the need of redemption, the saving work of Jesus of Nazareth, and how it now culminates in the church made up of Jew and Gentile. He then dives in with verse 1 of chapter 12 with a therefore statement. It's as if he's saying, because of all I have stated and declared in these first 11 chapters, you must realize that there is only one reasonable response, only one method of spiritual worship that can adequately answer the mercies of God that I've just laid out. And he uses a picture that would be very clear to those acquainted with the sacrificial system. The core of the church was still the Jewish people, and so they would be very acquainted with this Old Testament understanding. All that he has laid out already states clearly that this sacrificial system is done away with in terms of needing it for salvation because the perfect spotless lamb came and sacrificed himself on the cross in our place. Jesus bore the consequences for our sin. He was the perfect sacrifice. But that does not mean that we discard the image of sacrifice, Paul says. Now we... The church are the living sacrifice. Not in order to gain salvation, but because salvation has already been won for us. And this sacrifice is to yield our very bodies, our very lives to Christ in service of his gospel and kingdom. So the immediate response of those listening intently would be to ask, well, how do we do that, Paul? And his answer is by discerning the will of God. By stepping away from what the world tells you is good, what your own self tells you is good, and instead figuring out what God declares is acceptable and good and perfect. And Paul graciously goes on and begins to tell us exactly what that looks like. What is the will of God? And interestingly enough, he begins with a statement on how true Christians relate to one another in light of their covenant relationship with God. Interesting that that's his go-to. That's his primary statement. Now, this was extremely important in the immediate context of Paul's contemporary audience there at the Church of Rome. You see, a little over a decade before he authored this letter, the Caesar of the Roman Empire had decreed that all Jews were going to be cast out of Rome. And so the very fledgling church at Rome, made up of Jew and Gentile 10 years earlier, had been dismantled with only Gentiles remaining. 
And immediately before he authored this letter, however, 10 years later, the Jews had been allowed back in, but there were issues in cohesion and unity. Just think Republicans and Democrats, right? One leaves and everybody thinks, great, we all get along, and then they come back. And all of a sudden, what happens? There's not a cohesion or a unity. As with the church at Corinth, division and cliques had begun to form, and this was Paul's command to them to pull it together. They were ruining their witness. Like Corinth, the church was acting more like the non-believing world than the kingdom of God. They were motivated more by selfishness and ego than by selflessness and humility. And so Paul writes and says, let me correct your theology. And now that I have done that, here is the proper response. In other words, if you believe this gospel, if you are saved by this gospel, then live in a way that shows it. Amen? And only the true Christian faith that is empowered by the Spirit that links our hearts to the law and love of Christ can walk in this way. Paul's corrective is to see ourselves within the context of the gospel and the relationships that it establishes rightly. We know this because he goes on, as we saw in verse 6 onward, to talk about what it looks like to be members of a body, seeing the members of a church as gifts to one another and how to love genuinely within the context of the local church. Paul is implicitly stating that growth as a Christian requires active participation in a local expression of the church, the Christian covenant community. Now, friends, we have to admit that this does not come naturally to us, and so it requires correction in how we see God, his people, and ourselves, Because we cannot see ourselves clearly, as the rest of these verses will show, unless we view those with whom we are in relationship clearly first. Primarily, it requires us to see God clearly. That the God of the Bible, the one true God, is inherently communal in his triune nature. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Dwelling in eternal unity, three distinct persons in one God. Second, it requires us to see God's people clearly. Christ has one bride, and that is the body of the church, in which the members participate through a local expression. The New Covenant writings give us no license to believe that we can be part of the bride of Christ unless we are part of the New Covenant community in a practical and physical way. In fact, no part of the New Testament was written to them. How do I know? The book of Romans was written to the church at Rome. First and second Corinthians were written to the church at Corinth. Philippians was written to the church at Philippi. I could go on. First Timothy, second Timothy, Titus were written to pastors in local churches at Ephesus in Crete. The book of Revelation was written to seven churches. The new covenant writings give us no license to believe that we can be part of the bride of Christ unless we are part of the new covenant community in a practical, physical way. Third, and most specifically, it requires us to not think too highly of ourselves. But interestingly, this idea can come in two forms that both have a sense of self-importance about them. One is to believe that I am better than those around me. 
which leads to a selfishness and arrogance where you do not consider your actions affecting others at all. It leads to a dismissal or minimization of your commitment to them and responsibility for them. This is a person that says with their mouth that they are covenant to, to God's people, but when struggles come, they are the authority rather than God, rather than his word, and rather than his church. The other manifestation is the person who does not see their value as part of the body at all, or as a gift of themselves to their brothers or sisters at all. And this is a level of ego that disguises itself as self-hatred and low self-confidence, but this is just another form of selfishness, where rather than concerning yourself with care and responsibility for others, you're focused on your own feelings of inadequacy or feeling like an outlier. And these lead you to pull away from the body in which you've been placed. Hopefully it doesn't take long for us to see that both of these mentalities bear no resemblance to the selfless model provided by Christ. Any misunderstanding in these areas will lead to a place where a person is so inebriated with themselves and their judgment and authority that they will do damage to the body of Christ and think nothing of it. A person who holds wrong views of God, of the church, and of themselves, and the relationship between them is like a drunk man in Paul's mind, believing they are thinking clearly when everyone around them can see them stumbling, falling, and harming themselves and others. This is why he says to think soberly with sober judgment. And this is who we used to be. We used to be solely driven by self. We heard this in our earlier reading from Titus 3.3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Sounds like that was written in 2022, not in the first century. This is what we Christians used to be. And this is what we will continue in if we are not purposeful to transform our thinking because we are still sinners saved by grace. Amen. This is inebriated thinking. So Paul gives clarity by providing a metaphor for us to use as a filter, for us to think through, a metaphor of a body to help us think clearly. And in this metaphor, we see a common unity amidst a diversity of members. A common unity amidst a diversity of members. Now, the diversity I'm talking about is not just height or ethnicity or looks. I'm talking about diversity of heart, diversity of thought, diversity of personality. Together, these metaphors of placing ourselves on the altar and as living, uh, a living sacrifice and living as a body, a body with many members, these will help us think soberly and clearly when it comes to relationships formed by the grace of God. This imagery would have been clear to most in that day. The idea of citizenry in Rome, in the Roman Empire, as a body politic was common knowledge. A few writers of Paul's day even called the governmental state of the Roman Empire the body of the emperor. And so perhaps Paul even used this idea as a way to redeem it or as an argument against the Roman Empire. We don't know which. Paul uses this imagery here and in 1 Corinthians to show that a local church is not just a group of autonomous attendees that come and go to an event as they please, 
that they're not just participating as it seems good for them to do so or serve with their gifts when it works for their schedule. All of these would have been anathema to Paul. To think this way is to think that a body is still whole and functioning properly if a finger randomly fell off or if a hand operated independently from an arm. Think about it for a second. It's grotesque. If someone walks up to you and their finger just falls off, there's probably something very, very wrong. Are there situations where a person is a Christian outside of participation in a local church? Sure, absolutely. A person that's just saved. A person that may be harmed at a church and looking to move out of an abusive church. Absolutely. But that does not mean that they should stay that way. To use Paul's metaphor, when a finger gets chopped off a body, is it still alive for a bit? Absolutely. You put it on ice. But what happens if it doesn't get reattached quickly? It dies. Why? Because it's disconnected from the head and the heart, which in Paul's metaphor is Christ and his spirit. If Christ is the head of the body, why would you not want to be attached to the body, actively participating in the body? The Christian's faith is a faith that takes place in community. Loving accountability requires that we live out our faith in group existence. Yes, each part of the body has come to faith individually, But that faith places them in a people because the one another's of the faith, the commands of Christ, the commands of the apostles, are directed to a covenant people. Just as God's law was directed to the Jewish covenant people, the law of love, the law of Christ, now rules over a new covenant people made up of all tribes and tongues and nations and ethnicities. And the way each of us participates in that is in the local expression of that universal church. As we join with Christ, we begin to change. We become concerned not just about ourselves, but about the body in which we participate. We recognize our part in the body, and it calls us to act harmoniously and together for the good of the whole body. As God draws people into a local body, he gives us a measure of faith and a gifting. And sometimes this gift is seen in talents, but most often it is simply seen in who you are. Do you realize, dear friends, that you are a gift to the church? Because of who you are, you will have strengths and weaknesses. Saying you are a gift is not saying, and everybody will like you all the time. That's an earthly mentality. You are a gift because of both your strengths and your weaknesses. These strengths, if given in service to the body, will make the body grow in witness and love. And these weaknesses, if displayed in vulnerability and accepted humbly, will give the rest of the body a chance to love and support, to hold you accountable, to call you to grow out of those weaknesses into a greater reflection of Christ. And if it is a weakness that cannot be helped, such as physical frailty, let's say, Well, what a great chance for the grace of God to encircle you by way of his people. Any group of people with a common affinity can be called a community. It can be based around a hobby or an ideology or a common struggle. But only the group of people drawn together by the forgiveness and reign of Jesus Christ 
can live as a truly diverse group of people that still have unity in him. It is in this interdependence, not codependence, but interdependence, that the world looks at the local church and should see something different. Not something perfect, but something different. The world expects that when differences of opinion pop up in an affinity group, that the group will destroy itself. And this is why the world is in such division and hatred for one another right now. Politics and opinions have caused every bridge club and sports league and CrossFit gym and even biological families to splinter. What a chance for the true church, made up of true disciples of Jesus, to stand up and show how powerfully uniting the love of Christ and the gospel of Christ is for those who are in him. And so we rejoice in Sundays like this where we can vow together in covenant commitment. To be clear, baptism and the vow of membership is not just another religious checkbox or a platitude we speak with our mouths but never intend to fulfill with our lives. It is not just an observance of a religious tradition that we must do to get to heaven when we die. In fact, baptism and stepping into membership in this local body, they are none of these things. What they are is an oath that we proudly and voluntarily proclaim that just as we have given our lives to Christ, we now also give our lives to his people in common unity, together proclaiming with our words and lives that Jesus is our common king. And only by his spirit, have we, this odd collection of misfits and sinners, been brought together? Amen? It's on Sundays like this that we can strongly affirm Paul's closing statement in verse 5 of our text that we now have before us, that we are and we have a mutual responsibility for one another. A mutual responsibility for one another. Let's look again at the second half of verse 5. There he says that we are individually members one of another. I love the ESV, but in this case, I love the other translations a little bit more. Both the NIV and NLT are helpful here. The NIV says, and each member belongs to all the others. The NLT, and we all belong to each other. We are individuals, yes, with individual gifts and needs and emotions, but we are collectively joined in our love of Christ by the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit dwells in us and is given direction of our lives, then we will have a common love for one another that is stronger and more resilient than the love that the world claims. The world's form of commitment is a romantic notion that comes and goes with feelings and assumptions. But a Christian's commitment is one that holds firm with a dogged commitment to the covenant that we have vowed to one another. Why is this necessary, that the Christian faith must be worked out in community? Because sanctification will not happen to the same extent without one another. It may happen in isolation, but it won't happen to the same extent without one another. For it is within the frustration that we find with one another and the discord that comes when our diversity starts to cause fracturing of our unity, it is in these things that we are stretched to grow into the image of Christ, and it is in these things that we can actually witness to the great, miraculous nature of the gospel. Only then can we be tested to the same measure. Only then do we have to rely upon the gospel that binds us, 
the Holy Spirit who empowers us, the King that reigns over us, and the Word of God that holds us in covenant. It is when we come to the end of ourselves and our own selfishness that the Lord reigns supreme in his church. It is in this state of being sinners saved by grace, working out what it is to be in Christ despite our weaknesses, that we witness the most clearly to what Christ has done in our lives. But if we follow our romantic notions of relationship and friendship with which the world forces us to conform and we let our feelings be our authority, we will eventually stop listening to brothers and sisters with whom we are covenanted and we will not see the sanctification that takes place in the life of those who are in Christ. As with the marriage covenant, it is at the moment of the vow that we must make the deliberate decision The covenant loyalty will hold us together even when our feelings or our false notion of love does not. Obedience is not a decision based upon a temporary feeling. Every parent who is discipling their child knows this. It is a conscious choice in spite of that feeling, empowered with a faithfulness to a vow previously made to a God that has been faithful to us. And so this morning... We have the blessing and joy of having four individuals who will vow first to Christ and then subsequently to the church that they belong, body and soul, giving themselves to Christ and his people. And when, then we as members will respond in a similar covenant commitment to each other. We will also affirm the new members of the church that became members at the congregational meeting a week ago yesterday. But first, let's conclude by asking one last question. What is it to belong to one another? First, when we belong to one another, we bear responsibility for one another's walk with Christ. Responsibility. We bear their burdens of sin and trials. We commit to holding them accountable to righteousness and recognize this is a great outworking of true love. Accountability is not hatred, dear friends. Only the world says that. Accountability is love. We don't only interact with and love those that are like us. We bear responsibility for all the body to greater and lesser extents. Just as a finger might be closer to the hand it still cares for and bears the pain of the foot should that pain affect the body. Friends, just in the same way, You may be closer to some people in this church than others, but you still bear responsibility for all of the members to greater and lesser degrees. This responsibility for one another is not just borne by the elders. It is all of our responsibility. The elders simply lead the body in this charge. It is all of our responsibility to initiate relationships and disciple one another and build one another up to pray for one another, to cry with one another, to rejoice with one another, to point one another to Christ in all we do and say, and to discipline one another should the need arise. This, in and of itself, is an evangelistic witness to the world. Secondly, though, not only responsibility, it's also a matter of authority to belong to one another. It is to give up your autonomous authority to those with whom you are covenanting. It is to say that while each of us have a will and conscience and understanding of God, We also recognize that all of these are sometimes flawed and in danger of being errant to the point of self-delusion and destruction. Friends, there could not be a more otherworldly view than the idea of giving yourself over to other humans. 
Our current world tells us to trust no one but ourselves, to be true to no one but ourselves, and have no authority over our lives but ourselves. And let's just talk about the elephant in the room. The church has not done a very good job. All of the issues that are arising in the church, I read again this week of two more pastors who fell in adultery, of another pastor who was embezzling money, We've all listened to the rise and fall of Mars Hill. We've all heard of all of the abusive pastors, all the abusive churches. And so people feel rightly, I need to protect myself from those evil churches. Well, friends, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. The solution for misuse is proper use, not disuse. The true church will stand as all of the rest of the terrors fall. And so we, as those purchased by the blood of Christ, give ourselves over to the authority of others. Not one person who could also be errant, not just a handful of leaders who could also be corrupt, but to a body of believers who have no authority over itself but the true and inerrant word of God as it's been proclaimed for 2,000 years. And if we see something broken in the body, we bring it up with a humility that we could be wrong and with a willingness to be told by the rest of the body under the authority of God's word that we instead might need to repent and change our minds. This is what it is to give ourselves over to one another. A renowned Roman scholar named Douglas Moo sums all of this up in a way that is better than I could even put it. You might say, well, Hans, why don't you just read this and not say the rest? Yeah, I wouldn't have filled 30 minutes that way. <laughs> just kidding. Hopefully what I've said to you lays it out and this will sum it up. Douglas Moo said, I cannot fully renew my mind without the active help of other believers. I cannot understand what Scripture teaches apart from dialogue with others who are reading that same Scripture. I cannot live the life of a disciple of Christ apart from the nurturing context of a community of believers who encourage me, pray for me, and set an example for me. I cannot discern the blind spots in my obedience to Christ without other believers to point them out to me. Here is where the attitude of arrogance that Paul rebukes in verse 3 can get in the way. We think of ourselves more highly than we ought, and so conclude that we do not need the help of others. I love that quote. So our application this morning is clear. Through baptism and our vows of membership, we will commit to this common work of God's grace. Then be purposeful to get to know those for whom you are responsible. We will stop conforming to an attendance mindset or the false notion that watching a sermon online is the same as active participation in a local body. We will get involved and serve and be incarnate in one another's lives. We will give permission to others to be responsible for you and hold you accountable and take responsibility for the teaching and preaching in this church and for those with whom you are in covenant. Only in making these conscious efforts can we fully step into the sanctification that Christ has for us in relationships formed by the grace of God. And if you are visiting with us today and you do not know Christ, he is calling you into covenant relationship with himself. If you do know Christ but you've wandered away from the church, he is calling you back to his bride. Whether it be here or somewhere else, be connected to the body of Christ. And so we will begin with the taking of communion together and a couple of songs of worship as the children will join us from their class. And then we will listen and celebrate together as four souls are added to our number. And we'll finish with vows of new members and existing members as we vow to belong to one another.
These are exciting things. And so let's begin by praying that the Lord would prepare our hearts for what we're about to witness.